Hello, friends. Welcome back to the show. My guest today is Roy Baumeister. He's a social psychologist at the University of Queensland, an author and the creator of the world-famous Marshmallow Willpower Test. The social psychology of sexual interactions is fascinating. Sex is more than just a physical act. It has cultural, emotional, spiritual, psychological and social implications many of which we're unaware of. Thankfully, Roy has spent years studying the literature on why people have sex and what's going right and wrong with it. Expect to learn why the female sex drive doesn't occur in the same way anywhere else in the animal kingdom, why women shape men more than men shape women, why more women have tried being bisexual but more men are gay, why there is little evidence for a cultural suppression of female sexuality from men, why the male sex drive is a tragedy, and much more. This episode may ruffle some feathers, I think, but it's just a a fascinating overview of the literature and the current sort of cultural position and the social psychology that is behind what makes us have sex. Roy is a legitimate legend in the field, and I'm very, very glad to have him on. I'm going to have him back on to talk about a ton of other stuff. But yeah, uh, enjoy (laughs) enjoy this one. But now, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Roy Baumeister. What do you mean when you say that women shaped men more than men shaped women? There's the biological argument that uh, men are change- are more changeable and, and continue to evolve faster than women do has something, and I'm not an expert on this, but has something to do with the, the Y chromosome doesn't have the backups that the X does. So if if you get a mutation on the X chromosome, that produces something weird, the the backup, the normal one, might take over and keep the person normal, whereas uh, for at least half of the Y chromosome, there's no backup, uh, which means that the the men are more changeable biologically. It, it, I put it, uh, men are nature's playthings. There's more uh, selection that operates on the male than on the female, uh, and as evidence for it, there's just greater variance um, in, in in males than in females. So. More, ge- more geniuses and more retards in the more geniuses, more side. retards. Uh, yeah, even with height, which is a very genetic uh, uh, thing, um, the the, high, the difference between the tallest and the shortest men is bigger than the difference between the tallest and the shortest women. Uh, so. Again, nature produces more variety uh, on the male. That I've talked to some biologists about whether this is plausible, and they sort of say yes, but I haven't gotten a firm, straight answer. Uh, you see, t- to drive evolution forward, uh, there are a lot of mutations. Some of them are, a few of them are beneficial, most of them are bad. So ideally, to improve the population, you want the bad ones to be flushed out of the gene pool. You don't want them to keep reproducing. Uh, whereas the good ones, you want them to spread as as uh, as rapidly as possible. Um, 
in our species and in many others, there's a, both of those are more easily accomplished with the male than the female. The thing is, most women have a baby throughout history, uh, and hardly any have more than a dozen. Whereas there are lots of men who have zero, uh, and there are men who have, you know, a thousand. Uh, <laughs> and certainly it's easier for a man than for a woman to have a, a couple dozen, uh, even in these days with serial monogamy and, and so on. Um, so if the sun has a really great new trait, uh, then it will spread faster than, than if it's in the daughter. And likewise, if the sun has a bad new trait, it'll be easier to get it out of the gene pool and not be repeated That's than so if it's in the daughter. That's such an interesting way to frame it. I really liked as well uh, your idea about the fact that um, men are the demand and women are the supply when it comes to sort of the sexual marketplace. But that makes sense about why women would shape men because men typically are the sexual protagonists. They, if women want men to um, have a house and a job and marry them before they have sex with them, then sure enough, men will stick to those norms. If they want them to be the strongest warrior or the smartest crypto investor or whatever it is, like w women kind of set the rules of the game and then men go, okay, is that what we're playing? And then they, they try and just, do things. I don't know whether you follow Steve Stewart Williams. I'm going to guess that you probably will know who he is. I don't. Okay, so he's an evolutionary psychologist, wrote the, the Ape Who Understood the Universe, fantastic book. And he loves posting up um, images from nature, animals, a lot of the time birds, doing these ridiculous, like extravagant dances, colorful plumage, and they're doing death-defying stunts, jumping out of trees, just trying to get women's attention, trying to get female birds attentions i suppose but you do kind of see basically the same thing and that i think is what i liked about women shaped men more than men shaped women yes it seems uh, uh have the impression men will do whatever is required by women in order to obtain sex and not a whole lot more <laughs> <laughs> and so women can set the norms uh one book that influenced me early in my career was uh, Marsha Gutentag and Paul Secord's book, Too Many Women, uh, who went through a ton of data about uh, sex ratio differences. You know, some societies have a lot more men, others have more women. Um, and uh, sure enough, when there's a surplus of men, uh, it's not majority rule like in politics. It's minority rule like in economics. Uh, was, you know, if there are too many men, as it were, and not enough women, the the, the supply is not equal to the demand. The demand is high. And so men really have to make serious commitments and uh, do whatever women want in order uh, to have sex. And when it's the other way around, uh, like after a major war that's killed a lot of the men, uh, or on today's American college campuses where women uh, outnumber men three to two, um, then the supply exceeds the demand, and so the price goes down in the sense of what the woman can uh, demand and expect. And uh, long-term commitment, no. Sexual fidelity, no. Uh, waiting until marriage or whatever to begin sex, no. Uh, and uh, if she doesn't adjust to the man, then the man can soon move on and find another female partner. Uh, but, of course, it's reversed in places where there are a surplus of men, like in America's Wild West, or uh, China during the uh, the one child period when there was a lot of selective abortion, 
millions of surplus men, uh, then then the price is high and the man really has to make a, a serious commitment and do whatever the woman wants uh, in order to get into a sexual relationship. Who did you find out was having lots of great sex? <laughs> well, that's a, uh, you looked at the, the research on that. It's very unequally distributed. You know, if you just sort of casually read the magazines and watch movies, you get the impression lots of young people are just falling into bed with each other uh, very casually all the time. Uh, but the the numbers and the, the survey data tell a, a different story. Um, for looking at people in their 20s, uh, which is the sexual dream age in the sense everybody younger than 20s wants to be older and everybody older wants to be younger. Uh, <laughs> um, so if, if you look at those people, um, there are a handful of very attractive people uh, who are having plenty of sex uh, and others a lot less. I mean, there's the sort of Pareto principle that shows up in a lot of things where 20% of people are responsible for 80% of the action. I mean, this is true, like even in a scientific field, you know, 20% of the scientists are doing 80% of the, the exciting new research and publishing and so on. Um, so numbers, something like that may be, may be true. And it's, uh, it, it's true for both men and women, but uh, again, women are more selective. So the inequality is, is bigger for men. That is, uh, like I said, a, a small fraction of the men are having the majority of the sexes. Lots of women are interested in them and the rest of them uh, can hardly get a, a, a response. Now, I've read some some journalistic columns and, and so on uh, that after 30, uh, it changes for both men and women, but in, in somewhat different ways. Uh, a lot of those men who really couldn't attract a lot of interest, sort of the middle of the pack, uh, you know, attractive men, you know, by the time they're in their 30s, they've got more money, they're a little more grown up, they have a little better understanding of the world. So uh, they find the, uh, the women uh, are attracted to them, um, and so they will do well. Uh, the women uh, in their 30s, uh, a lot of them are putting career first and so on, and uh, some of them start to complain, where are the good men? We're not getting the quality of men even that they got in their 20s, and they're sort of disappointed to find that some of the men in their thirties just refuse to date women in their thirties. They don't want women in their old age, in their own age. They want they want younger women. So uh, there may be this sort of party <laughs> party cohort of men in their thirties and women in their twenties. You're having a, a fine time, and as I said, plenty of sex, and uh, it's, it's it's exciting to the women because the the men are established and have money and are, are doing well. It's exciting to the men because the women are young and beautiful, uh, but uh, but others others get left out. What about the great bit of sex? Lots of great sex. Lots of great sex. Well, that narrows it down some. That you're, you know, just going to bed with one person after another uh, doesn't necessarily produce the highest uh, quality of sex because it's better if people get to know each other. And uh, um, is that born out in the data? Uh, yes, uh, in terms of uh, quality of sex, you know, people are more likely to um, report a, a good quality interaction with uh, with a regular partner. Um, 
again, there's a bit of a gender imbalance there. Most men are not that if difficult to uh, get to an orgasm, whereas women's bodies are more complicated and men maybe take some time uh, to learn how to do it. And so to please a particular woman um, might take a little more practice and skill. I believe I read some data that even on the the hookups, you know, with no future or uh, no commitment or anything, uh, the woman's rate of orgasm is low. But if she hooks up with the same man twice, even without a relationship, the second time her, her orgasmic frequency goes up. Uh, all this suggesting again, it, it takes, it, it takes a little while. So I, I saw the impression married people and single people kind of envy the, each other, think the other's having a better sex life. Um, it's, the data suggests married people tend to have more sex, uh, for the single person. There's often, uh, feast and famine kind of periods. You know, you might have several people or, or have an intense relationship and have a lot of sex. Cause you know, when you start out, you're often having sex every day or twice a day. Uh, most marriages don't sustain that. Uh, but there are also long periods for a lot of single people of, of no sex at all. And, uh, you know, I'm friends with the, the great sex researcher, uh, Helen Fisher, and uh, she has national survey data saying a majority of single people are now saying they did not have sex one time in the past year. Um, so uh, when they do have it, if somebody new, it's often very exciting because it's a new person. Uh, as I said, this the competence issue on a, on a first-time thing, but... Assuming you figure it out and you, you get to know each other and you, you have an ongoing period, you, again, you can have a, uh, a phase where you're having plenty of very exciting sex uh, uh, every day or, or two or three times a day. Um, and so the quantity is better and the excitement is better, but that's compensated by uh, long periods when there's uh, when there's nothing yeah it's a trade-off between uh, novelty and the advantage of intimacy right sometimes novelty at least for men right. seems to be an advantage but for women intimacy and familiarity and understanding yeah. uh, i read a great paper about how um <clears throat> the they'd done self-reports from women about what it was that was getting in the way of the orgasm and it seemed like self-referential thoughts concerns about performance uh, expectation to orgasm, oddly, was one of the biggest barriers to women finding orgasm, at least in this paper. And I thought that was really interesting. Um, but it makes complete sense because you think about what gets released during the female orgasm, bonding hormones. Do you really want to bond with a male that you haven't become familiar and intimate emotionally with just because you managed to have sex? You know, this would be in cases of forced sex, this could be a bit problematic. And I know that there are cases where, um, I don't know whether it's due to what happens during sex, but where women can sometimes almost fall for sexual attackers in kind of a bizarre way. Um, so yeah, I think, I think it kind of, it does make sense. Data about sex are, are all a little bit weak. Uh, you know, a scientist would wish for better data. I, I can sometimes like compare sex and violence. Those are two big issues in any society and so on. But uh, in terms of being a social scientist and trying how much can we learn about this, we can learn a lot more about violence than about sex. 
because with violence, you can do laboratory experiments with simulated things, other sorts of aggression to really test causal hypotheses very carefully. You have great real world statistics in terms of murder rates and so on. You know, sometimes reporting of assaults and so on may may change locally, but even so, you can look at trends over time. Pretty good data on that. Murder data tend to be quite reliable. In contrast with sex, we have very little like that, other than other than births, uh, which are also objectively recorded. So we know somebody probably had sex if there's a birth. Uh, but we're much more relying on what people say, and what people say about their sex lives is not the unvarnished truth. Uh, there's illusions of wishful thinking and, and other things that intrude on it. So it's scientifically challenging. It's still worth doing because it's, it, it, it's important. You want to know something like how long does it take for people to have sex? Um, well, I, I don't know anyone who sits there with the wristwatch uh, or the stopwatch <laughs> keeping track. So people may estimate, but... You know, time sort of stands still, perhaps. Uh, I don't trust their their estimates all that much either. What did you find out about the mystery of female sexual desire? Well, um, the one reason it's mysterious is it's, it's more changeable uh, than the male one. Um, I, I, I got this uh, idea sometime. I remember reading History of the Sexual Revolution, and all the scholars who studied it said that, well, it was a change in behavior for everybody, but women changed much more fundamentally than men. The, you know, the men, after the sexual revolution, had a lot more chances to do what they wanted. Uh, but their desires and all that were pretty much the same. Whereas women's attitudes towards their bodies and feelings about sex and acceptance of their desires and everything changed in a much more fundamental way. So I wondered, well, why is that? Is that a general property is something about female sexuality more changeable or was that just some specific issue with the sexual revolution uh, so i waded through a large amount of, of other sorts of data and it's it's very much true the, the way i put it sometimes is the sex drive everybody agrees is influenced by both nature and culture i mean there's your genes and your hormones and all that evolution uh, but there are also societal pressures and what other people are doing and expectations and reputations and all that stuff as well. Uh, so they argue about how much of each is there. And my conclusion is that the recipe is somewhat different by gender, the male sexuality being more on the nature side, uh, female being more on the culture side. Uh, so you look at, for example, immigrants when they move to one culture to another, the women pretty quickly s settle into whatever the new the, the sexual norms are at the new place, uh, whereas the men retain more their their others. They don't they don't change as much, uh, or as in terms of going through adult life, um, a woman's sexual desires at twenty may be different from thirty or forty, and she may try same-sex relationships or take up masturbating or want to be spanked or, or whatever. Whereas the average man, the, 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 his desires at 20, 25 are pretty much the same at 55 to 60. They're just you know diminished a bit in, uh, in intensity, but he doesn't pick up new ones as much. Or another sign, uh, you look at highly educated women and uneducated women, the, uh, 
masters and PhDs uh, versus the dropped out of high school, they have very different sex lives. Education really seems to alter the woman's sex life, whereas the men are not all that different <coughs> as a function of level. What's the change that it makes? Se- what's the change that it makes to women's sex lives? Uh, the uh, the more educated women try a lot more things, do a lot more things. They are, are much less uh, uh, traditional and conservative. Um, so, have you got any uh, idea why why you think that might be? Uh, well, I think one would say education exposes people to new ideas and new practices and and, and so on influences. Um, and it's interesting. Religion is another way, uh, another set of institutions, also very powerful in society. And again, the most religious to versus the least religious women have quite different sex drives, whereas the men are almost depressingly similar uh, across that. Um, and there, religion sort of seems to push in the opposite direction from education, whereas the the higher you go in education, the more the woman is open to trying oral sex or anal sex or threesomes or whatever. Uh, whereas with religion, if you go to more highly religious, the less she is open to uh, uh, trying these different practices and multiple partners and all those things. Uh, so, so again, to this, looking at this as a social scientist, it was really interesting. Here, you have two powerful sets of social forces of institutions in society pushing in opposite directions on the sex drive and both having a bigger effect uh, on women than on men. Uh, so you know, I, I noticed too, uh, you know, back in the sexual revolution when I was a young man, there were all these books explaining female sexuality to them, our bodies, ourselves and whatnot. And they didn't produce these books for men. Uh, there was some advice on, on how to understand the female body uh, and, and so on, but there's much less, less mystery there. Uh, so for a woman, so part of this is the complexity of the, the physical response perhaps, but, uh, also for a woman to understand her sex drive, it's a moving target. So even if she figures it out when she's 20 or 25, when she's 35, she may have different feelings, different patterns of desires and, and, and so on. And what, what worked then didn't. And, and for the male, as I said, it's much less mystery to begin with. And once you've figured it out, you don't really have to uh, continue changing or updating your, your, your understanding of, of what you want. One of the interesting things that I saw was that women have the ability, but men have more motivation when it comes to um, their desire for sex, but the way that they actually perform during sex. So women have the ability to have more sex, multiple orgasms, etc. Men have a I mean, even the most virile man has a pretty big latency period after having sex. It's so, I just find it really interesting that um, it's the group which has the biggest sex drive, which is actually restricted from having sex or orgasming as much. And the side which perhaps has a lower sex drive on average seems to be able to perform more. Yes, um... I don't know if we call an orgasm a performance, but uh, but uh, <laughs> depends depends if it's real or not. Uh, <laughs> there is that. Um, I think part of the answer is that the male orgasm, because it's so fundamental in the process of reproduction, evolved much earlier uh, than the female, uh, and so the 
the, the human female orgasm is, is a fairly novel thing. Uh, I have done studies with vibrators and so on, indicating that uh, you know some of the other great apes do seem to have contractions. I, I, I'm, <laughs> I joke that I'm glad I'm not the research assistant who had to go to the, the gorilla and with the vibrator and say, uh, sign a consent form and then we'll, we'll do something here. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> but they, somebody did it. And, uh, so they are capable of it. They doubt that it happens very often because the, the coupling doesn't last very long and the male gorillas aren't really, uh, caring much about pleasing their partner and all that. Um, so, sorry, does that mean that most other animals, d dolphins and elephants and stuff, that the orgasm as a sensation isn't a thing? Well, I'm not an expert on this. I, I have read some other experts who's, and it's not totally known. Again, human orgasms, we hear about many elephant. people uh, talking to, to them. Uh, but it looks, as far as we can tell, that a lot of them, there isn't even the capability of the female orgasm, uh, or if it's there, it's probably not a very common thing. Um, one of my lines of thought recently is that uh, in order for humans to evolve the way we did and uh, become these cultural beings, there had to be a whole bunch of changes, including bonding the male and the female for a longer time. This goes back to you need a bigger brain to do culture, you have a big brain, it, it's going to burst the uh, the birth canal <laughs> uh, if it's there in the womb. So it all has to grow after birth, which then compared to other apes, human babies are way prematurely born. This is all babies. Uh, it, it, you know, a young chimpanzee can kind of take care of itself, you know, in, in a year or two. Um, whereas the... Uh, the human is fully dependent at least till seven or eight and, and to some degree till into the teen years. Um, so it needs the father and the mother to work together to provide more food. The human mother could not possibly feed multiple children by herself, particularly when she's pregnant uh, again. Uh, so for that whole thing to work, they had to get the man uh, recruited into the provider role and to form the commitment to the women. So all kinds of the changes in evolution from humans to others, starting with just facing each other during sex uh, and kissing, you know, facing, you can look into each other's eyes and form an attachment there. You mentioned both sides have these orgasmic release of hormones. They start to feel love for each other. Uh, it was one of the surprising findings during the early days of the sexual revolution and people were just out having sex all over with strangers but yeah they still started falling in love uh, they weren't uh, uh, able to uh, keep them as, as separate in that um, kissing uh, and so i would consider the female orgasm to be one of those that really improves the quality of the experience for both the man and the woman uh, obviously particularly the woman uh, and helps make them have this romantic love for each other uh, that bonds them together uh, for some years so that the children that come when you're having sex will uh, will be adequately provided for, at least until they're seven or eight. I read about the, the, the hunter-gatherers and 
as you know, through if you say human civilization's been around for 150,000 years, 140,000, we were hunter and gatherers. Uh, and in those, yeah, they do bond in a pretty monogamous fashion, but only for a while. By the time the kids are seven or eight, often the, they're getting on each other's nerves or the man is off to find another a younger woman or, or, or whatever. But that's enough to get the job done. Anyway, this more than you probably wanted to hear, but the female orgasm I look at is part of that constellation of things that helps bind a young couple together and make them stay together through the transition to parenthood and, and through the uh, the early years of the, the child's life. What about uh, male and female changes in sexual desire when you get into marriage and during marriage and then after having kids? Uh, yes, well, um, uh, I read this uh, book some years ago, this Australian woman, uh, a journalist with some social science background, uh, um, she had contacted me and, and got a book called The Sex Diaries and wanted to know if she could get it help, if I could help her publish it in America. And I didn't know what to do about that, but I read the book with great interest. Uh, she had the idea she would keep, keep records of people, get couples to keep records of their sex lives and it would make a, a racy bestseller with lots of uh, juicy details. Uh, and there was some of that, but the more of it was, uh, uh, the husband begging for sex and the wife saying no, 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 or the, the boyfriend and the girlfriend, uh, whatever. And so she said, it just seems like women go off sex once they settle into a committed relationship, that the, the excitement, the attraction is there for forming the relationship, not sustaining it. And it's certainly consistent with the idea that uh, uh, it's there in the female to form uh, the relationship. I think nature learned to turn up sexual desire in the young woman especially when she's sort of getting involved with a man because that will help him think oh my god this is great um and uh, even if she's a little difficult to get along with at times i have great sex every day for the rest of my life is totally worth it uh but then nature says once the bond is formed that's checked off and uh the natural agenda turns her attention to bearing and raising a child and so she's not so eager to have sex anymore. I asked two of my relationship uh, expert friends uh, if this was true in the research literature. This was, you know, just the woman's, uh, the, the journalist getting the, these people to report it. And they said, you know, it's not known in the literature, but we have data that could address that. And they had both collected data on married couples. And they just collected tons of data over the first five years of marriage. So they went and analyzed the data. Uh, which showed essentially this right at the time of the wedding, the man's desire for sex is higher than the woman's, but it's a fairly small difference. It, it is still significant. Men are hornier than women. Every, every measure shows that, uh, but uh, a, a small difference. And then across the first five years, the man's sexual desire stays about the same while the woman's progressively drops. And so five years into the marriage, they have a mismatch, even though they were pretty close at the time when they first got married. And so uh, this Bettina Arndt uh, in, the, in her book, uh, um, The Sex Diaries, uh, her impression does seem to be correct uh, in, in the research, um, at least in these, uh, in these data, that uh, female sexual desire tends to dwindle and diminish once... Uh, the relationship is formed and the, the commitment is established. Uh, so again, I think it's it's 
not uh, it's certainly not something that women are doing consciously. Uh, I think <clears throat> I think often the women may even be somewhat baffled and disappointed themselves to find out that they don't desire sex the way they did. Um, this is one of those things. It's courtship phase. Uh, a piece of advice that I read in Mate by Jeffrey Miller and Tucker Max is um, a lot of the time relationships can begin and the couple are attracted to each other. And then if the woman comes off the pill, perhaps because they've got married and they're deciding to maybe have children, her hormonal profile can change. And that can actually mean that she is uh, averse to the smell of the man. There's also some data that I've seen in the final month or so of pregnancy that the woman can feel very averse to the smell of her partner and very um, bonded to the smell of family. And this kind of seems to make a little bit of adaptive sense that let's say that you get into an argument with your partner when you're heavily pregnant, that could be dangerous for you. So you stick with your genetic kin in an attempt to kind of keep yourself <laughs> protected. And I like both of those, but it, it comes back to this idea again about the fact that the female sexual um, drive is super malleable, right? And it, it, it's constantly in flux. It's changing uh, in response to its ecology, what's going on around it. It's changing in response to its hormonal profile. Now, males... Sexual drive is also in response to testosterone levels, right? Higher testosterone level, uh, more desire for sex, more desire for new partners, sexual novelty, masturbation, all that sort of stuff. Um, but that, it's like the male sex drive is like linear. It kind of goes up and it's, it, do you want more of it or do you have less of it? The female sexual drive can go left and right. Uh, I think you looked at data that said more women have experimented um, going or they swing more from men to women and then back again whereas the bisexual category is a lot less occupied by men yes um yeah the, it's, it's complicated there are, i guess there are more gay males than gay females but the overlap between the bisexual category is a much bigger proportion of women who've ever had same-sex sex uh, than for men. Um, Why do you think it is that there's more gay men than gay women? Uh, well, that uh, that continues to be debated. Now, you have to understand the the scholarly issue or the scientific issue is how does homosexuality continue at all? Why is it not competed uh, out of the gene pool? Yeah, yeah. It, nature is against it since it doesn't reproduce. And a lot of cultures have been against it, although some have, have tolerated it, but certainly the last few centuries. Uh, you know, so we look to nature and culture as the two big explanations. For once, they agree <laughs> on not favoring homosexual activity, and yet it continues to survive. Uh, there are some interesting uh, answers uh, starting to emerge. Uh, you know, my uh, colleagues in the uh, uh, University of Queensland, Brendan Zeech, uh, a paper in, in science, and I think the second one coming along, uh, finding out that, okay, yes, there are genes that predict uh, homosexuality. It, it's not a particular gay gene, as they were once saying, and periodically they found one. Uh, in contrast, it's sort of combined activity of hundreds, if not thousands, uh, of them. Um, and the interesting finding is that 
the siblings of the gays, who, the heterosexual, their brothers and sisters are, are heterosexual. You know, this so-and-so is gay. Um, his brother is heterosexual. And he has more sexual partners than the average man. So the way I put it is that the super manly man who only is entirely masculine in all his traits, he doesn't relate to women all that well. It helps a man to be attractive to women to have a little more emotionality and warmth and nurturance and, and all these things. They like some degree uh, of, of, of feminine traits to be present. You know, they like a manly man too. Uh, but some of it helps. So it becomes a, a hit-the-middle problem. Uh, you want to have more of these genes, which will produce more feminine traits uh, in the man, uh, but maybe beyond a certain amount, since they're being, being mixed together at random in the, in the fetus, um, that uh, maybe a high amount then turns him to where he'd be more attracted to other men. Um, and so that becomes his genes made him homosexual, which again, nature doesn't reward since it does uh, that sex doesn't produce children. Uh, but the same configuration of genes, just a little bit on the other side of the border produces extra, uh, children, uh, by making uh, the others more, more attractive. And, uh, and that's enough to keep the, uh, the genes replenished in each generation so it will continue uh, to appear that is so interesting so a couple of things first off one of the best tactics that you should have if you're a guy that wants to be successful with women is to have a gay brother basically that genetically you're going to have a hormonal profile a genetic profile that's going to be good for you and also it kind of suggests that gay men are a lot closer to highly successful heterosexual men than we might think. You know, you've got not too far away from the genes. Also, I saw in your book, didn't it say that um, monozygotic twins, identical twins, have a 50% likelihood of the other twin being gay if one of the twins is gay? Yes. Uh, those data are, are a little while ago. I don't know if there's any update or anything, but that was an estimate which shows there's a lot of nature and a lot of culture. I mean, 50% likelihood of being gay, that's way above the it's probably 2 or 3%, uh, maybe at most 4 in the population. So it's if, you're, if your twin brother is gay and you're an identical twin, yeah, the odds are much higher than average. On the other hand, 50% is far from 100%. It's not determined. Uh, and... Um, and... Again, the true number may be a little higher than that because some people don't want to be gay uh, and will resist uh, acknowledging it. Uh, but um, nevertheless, I think there's a sign that there's ample input from both nature and, and culture. What did you mean when you talked about the tragedy of the male sex drive? <laughs> uh, yes, well, uh, using the tragedy in the term... Uh, in the more advanced literary criticism, Arthur Miller had a famous uh, essay, a tragedy is not just something bad happening, uh, but it's sort of a, a fatal flaw in yourself and you're striving for something great, uh, but because of the flaw, you you fail. He said, uh, he said, in a sense, tragedy, although it has an unhappy ending, it's more uplifting than comedy 
this comedy sort of looks at people's faults and foibles and bad things. And so, and so I describe it as a tragedy. I'm not saying it's, it's a calamity. I'm not even saying that it's, that it's a bad thing, but, uh, it seems doomed, uh, to falling short of its, of its desires that men were just instilled to want more sex than they're likely to get. Um, I think, uh, a while ago, we cited some research by one of my colleagues who, who surveyed her first-year college students of, uh, well, if you if you wanted, uh, how many people would you like to go to bed with for the rest of your life, assuming it was all up to you, don't worry about diseases or laws or pregnancy or anything, it's just, you know, to experience sex, how many people would you like to do it? And the average for the women was, was two and a half, and the average for the men was 64. Now, with that, there's a lot of disappointment ahead for those young men. <laughs> um, but it's it's true. Now, it must be said, a lot of the men just said, I'd like to have one. Presumably, they hadn't had any yet. And you think, well, if I could get one, that would be perfect. But the man who's had one kind of wishes he would have two or three. And the man who's had three maybe wishes for six or seven. And the man who's had ten maybe wish for, for fifteen. And, uh, you know, I've known men who had over a hundred sex partners and they were still wishing for more. Um, and that kind of, again, suggests this tragic flaw aspect that nature did not design you to be satisfied that, ah, I've had my sex and it was great and I'm done with that. <laughs> uh, no. And, and having it more makes you think of it more. So it, it stimulates more desire to try new things and do new things with different people or the same people. Um, so in that sense, it seems uh, somewhat doomed to frustration. And um, I've also been thinking in, in terms of the, uh, what I mentioned before, uh, that uh, we were talking about how women shaped men. I think women probably shaped men toward higher sex drive. It's, as, as I said, other apes, they don't take fatherhood seriously at all. The idea that you should provide food for your children, that would seem ridiculous to them, and especially doing it on a regular basis over many years, and even to the mother of those children, who, after all, is just some gorilla you had sex with a couple of years ago. Uh, no, no, that, that would seem ridiculous to them. Uh, and yet human males do this routinely. So when that was evolving... There were probably plenty of men who had the same outlook that the, your average gorilla does and say, come on, I have to work twice as hard to produce twice as much food every day and give half of it to this wife and baby. Uh, that seems nuts. And, and uh, well, those men took themselves out of the gene pool, right? Uh, if they didn't want to play along uh, and put up with uh, supporting the women and, uh, you know, um, known many women who are delightful and, uh, and fine people and so on, but inevitably some of them are difficult and neurotic and unpleasant and, and all that. And, uh, well, what's to make the man make the commitment and, and, and stay with them too. They need, they need providers to support them and their children. And the desire for sex is a strong thing. And so I, I'm suspecting that the human male population has a higher sex drive than the animals we evolved from and that they were specifically selected not in those terms but uh 
the women would reproduce with the men who wanted sex enough to uh, stay committed and, and put up with whatever the women's uh, demands and problems are. So a high sex drive would would be selected there. Uh, it's it's ironic because of course women complain about men being too sexually motivated, and uh, although they also complain when men stop making advances and and so on. It's a uh, it's, it's a it's, difficult it's balance a, to strike. It's a difficult bargain, you know. Glad I'm not a young man trying to figure out what the rules are today as they keep changing. Have um, you considered? Uh, have you heard of the term post nut clarity? Do you know what that is? I have not. Okay, so it's like postcoital depression, and I think it's it's like Nietzsche or Freud or someone that said after copulation the devil's laughter can be heard. And I think he's talking about this like such an apocalyptic way to talk about having sex and pillow talk. But um, many guys and girls as well, I've heard, uh, will be familiar with the just had sex. And then sometimes this sort of like quasi uh, melancholy state can set in. Do you think that this plays into the requirement, nature's requirement for men to have a, a high sex drive, that if you had sex and you laid there in the full body glow that I've heard typically is more common of a female post-sex uh, environment, um, that that would discourage you from going and seeking more sexual partners? And also post-nut clarity is now something that you can add to your uh, scientific lexicon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, this being sad or depressed after sex, I, uh, I haven't seen much about that. I, Spend more time on TikTok, Roy. Loads of loads of people on TikTok are talking about post nut clarity. Oh, okay. Maybe I should try to find that. Is uh, yeah, it's really not something I've heard about from other men or read about, or it certainly didn't fit my own experience either. Uh, but uh, maybe they do it. Uh, as to whether it discourages people from seeking new sex partners, I, I rather doubt that that's uh, uh, that's it. That would, uh, for example, I mean, for one thing. Right after sex, hardly anyone goes leaping out and running in search of a new sex partner. Uh, the, the new sex partners are sought, you know, later on different occasions. Uh, if you're single, it's you're just sort of back on the market. And if you're in a relationship, then, uh, um, well, people seek out other sex partners for various reasons, dissatisfaction or just excitement or curiosity. But, uh, but I don't know that the effects of a particular orgasm could last long enough to make any difference. Yeah, yeah. At activity. <laughs> yeah. Um, what did you look at to do with masochism and kink and stuff like that? Well, <laughs> yeah, I wrote stuff about that a long time ago. I was actually doing research. I wrote a book on how people find meaning in life. Um, so... Uh, when I was reading for that, I was just sort of looking for interesting stuff and wanted some people who have interesting lives that would lead me to uh, you know, give me some insight. Because back then, there was hardly any research directly on the topic. Um, so I thought, oh, maybe those people who like to be tied up and spanked and all that, I bet they have really interesting lives. Uh, so I was on sabbatical at the University of Texas. I remember I went over to the library and uh, grabbed all the books they had that uh, dealt with this stuff and spent a couple hours going through them. And I could tell pretty fast that I was not going to learn anything about the meaning of life 
uh, from uh, the kinky sex literature. Uh, but it was a challenge. One of my other lines of work is understanding the self. And masochism just seemed to be directly opposite to all the prevailing wisdom about the self, which is that, you know, you want to think well of yourself. You want to have high self-esteem. You want to be regarded as a success and all that. And yet these masochists want to be embarrassed and humiliated and put down and so on. Uh, we assume the self seeks pleasure and avoids pain, but these people want to be tied up and spanked and whipped and things like that. Um, and the self wants to be in control. That's another widespread basic assumption in psychology that you seek to establish and maintain control over your environment. <clears throat> and yet the, the masochists wanted to be tied up and, uh, uh, ordered around and, uh, you know, called slaves and things like that. So I wondered how to, to reconcile these and, and, uh, you know, there, there must be some illusion that the, you know, this, these facts about the self were so well known, uh, there couldn't really be a, a contrary evidence, but eventually I was convinced there was. And, and in fact, that that's one of the essential features of, of masochism is trying to get rid of the self, trying to escape. Uh, from self-awareness, that, that maintaining yourself and being confident and successful and all these things, uh, that involves a certain amount of stress, and, and people like to uh, uh, escape and forget who they are for a while. Um, one of my colleagues, Jay Hull, had been doing a line of research on alcohol, obviously also very popular, and he found that when people drink alcohol, they have less self-awareness, which is why they do a lot of crazy things. I mean, you're sober, you don't get up on the table with a lampshade on your head doing the doing a, a wild dance. Um, but uh, um, so it seems there's an appetite for things that get rid of self-awareness and temporarily even transform you into someone else. Uh, so these uh, sadomasochistic sex scenes uh, seem to do that. Uh, I remember reading somebody was doing a research project on the uh, the call girls in Washington D.C., uh, thinking, "Oh, this must be a real interesting lot." You know, that's the um, American government is there, and so what are these women like? And they interviewed a, a ton of them, and well, it turned out they were just the same as call girls any anywhere else. Uh, but the clients that they had all sorts of interesting information, and there was a lot of masochism in there. Uh, like I think they uh, said that uh, you know these are rich men who could afford to do whatever they wanted, but uh, the requests to spank the call girl were not nearly as common as requests to be spanked, something like eight to one. Um, so. Well, you think these highly successful, powerful men, they have a lot of more stress. Other people are always trying to expose them and get them down. They have to maintain a really larger-than-life image and keep up uh, this impression and, and get everyone around them continue to believe in how great they are. Uh, and so just getting rid of all that for a while, being tied up and uh, who knows, dressed in women's underwear and licking uh, the, the toes of a uh, of a paid sex worker, you can't possibly think of yourself as a senator so-and-so while you're doing that, that it just gets you completely out uh, of who you are. And that, that escape from self seemed to be a, a, a key part uh, of the appeal of it. That's, that's the best I could figure out. Uh, um, so the, the writings I did... Uh, we featured masochism as escape from self 
the the sadism part, uh, the compliment, that's much more complicated, and I I didn't really get uh, get as far with that. For one thing, there are a lot fewer of those. Uh, I I learned this while I was doing the research. Like the clubs for S and M, they typically have four times as many submissives as dominant. And a lot of the dominants started off as submissives and then just thought, well, I could give a perfect experience to someone else by dominating them. And so it's kind of a vicarious submission for them. So the dominant person, they might have their partner across their lap and be spanking them, but they're really empathically connecting with the partner and doing it just right to get get the person. Because yeah, spanking is is as part of a sex game uh, is a dicey business. If you do it too much, it will spoil the mood. If you do it not enough, it'll be like, oh, what was that for? Uh, so again, it's hitting the right, hitting the middle, uh, getting it just right. So it requires a high degree of sensitivity and empathy and attunement to the partner. And people who have had that desire and done those things themselves. Um, they uh, they like to uh, you know they feel better able to do that. I met this guy from the Kinsey Institute. I think when I uh, I was doing this research, and uh, the Kinsey Institute they they encourage their people to not only collect data but to actually go and participate uh, in these things, which is not part of bloody hell. That's one program. hell. That's one one hell of a but, request from your research candidates. Well. You know, he wanted them to be welcome. This goes back to Kinsey himself. He said, yeah, we're, we're trying to learn about this phenomenon that everybody does, but there's no scientific knowledge about it. So go ahead, explore. Go it, be spanked. About it. Go forth and be yeah, hit on the spanked. ass. Anyway, what he said was that uh, he would. Uh, he found that if he could go up to uh, usually a, a, a woman, although maybe a man too, he probably did both, uh, who was in the dominant role, who was sort of playing a top, uh, and he would tell him. I really have this desire to dominate you. And he said there'd usually be a kind of flash in their eye. Like this was exciting to them because they, they remember that even though they're very much at, the, at present playing the, the dominant uh, role. Uh, often they'd started out with the other and they still had that kind of uh, uh, excitement at someone proposing the idea to them. It seems to me like a lot of the um, exciting stuff to do with these sexual taboos is 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 crossing a taboo line right it's reversing the polarity of a role so you have the high-powered boss bitch or ceo that wants to play the other role and i think that the cute girl next door that dresses up in leather and has a whip is an archetype for a reason because you think well that's her reversing her sort of polarity her identity a little bit did you look at um paul bloom's work about the sweet spot because he interviewed a bunch of dominatrixes dominatri for that and uh he was telling me that he spoke to one that was a professional dominatrix and she said nothing captures attention like a whip and what she meant by that was that if you've been hit in the face for a few seconds afterwards you're not thinking about anything and that kind of leads back to what you were talking about there that it's people want um peace from mind right they want to escape it's, it's a type of escapism it's the same as using drugs right. or alcohol it's to get them out of their headspace you know they've got this high-powered executive who has to do things and he needs to be executive function is through the roof and then he's tied up and what can he do he can't do anything he literally can't right. do anything yes yes uh i uh i i did this work long ago it was before i knew paul bloom and uh, read his stuff 
Um, but that's true. And I, I did read some of them make the same kind of comment. Uh, one said, I think a whip is a great way to get someone to be here now because they can't look away from it and they can't think about anything else. Now they don't usually hit them in the face, I think, cause they don't want to leave marks there. And plus that's, that's risky. Uh, I, I learned the S and M communities are really careful. They want to administer pain, but not cause any injury. Um, so, and, and, and dominants who actually hurt their partners, uh, are often then shunned and, and not welcome anymore. Uh, but, uh, but wherever they whip, I'm like, the bear ass was, I guess the popular place, uh, that, uh, as it's the same thing and it certainly gets one's attention. What about pornography? You looked at that. All right. Well, uh, what about it? It's certainly been a huge and revolutionary change or a couple centuries ago, there was. There's very little, there, there always have been some erotic drawings uh, going back into prehistory, uh, but the availability has been quite low, and I assume the quality was too. I think uh, um, I forget it was a remark that a young man today can go online and see more naked female flesh in in ten minutes than his great great grandfather saw in an entire lifetime. Um, so. It's clearly it's here to stay. Uh, I was young when people were still debating, should it be made available? And can stores sell it over the counter or only in the mail? And, and, and if it's too pornographic, it should be suppressed and censored and uh, even people put in jail. Uh, now I think they've given up on most of that. There's, there's so much sexual stimulation available. Well, that's, I don't know for better or for worse. Uh, Probably some of both. Um, interesting question for me uh, is if to think of novelty as a limited resource that you can get excited by new things, uh, whereas things that are the same, you know, the same sexual stimuli year after year, will become somewhat less exciting uh, to you. So, uh, young men already have high sexual desire it doesn't take much to turn them on in a way it's kind of a waste <laughs> to look at all that pornography and get turned on there because what novelty are you going to find in your 40s and 50s and 60s uh to produce uh, arousal there there's a, a writer from the uk called mary harrington and she did an article called the three laws of porno dynamics and the second law of porno dynamics is the law of fap entropy which states that whatever you start out wanking to will get progressively more weird and novel over time. And she's basically highlighting this, the fact that it, this isn't true. This definitely isn't true for uh, all men, but a particular subsection of men need to continue to amp up the uh, extremity, the novelty, whatever it is, and then... Before you know it, you're down in the, the annals of Pornhub watching blueberry porn or whatever it is that you can manage to get yourself into. Um, but yeah, that, I, I think that that's, that's a dynamic. You're right that um, males overclocked sex uh, drive gets really sort of weaponized and then downregulated. And then you've got to go again, like we need to ratchet it back up again. Then it gets downregulated again further because it just continues to adapt. Yes. Um 
the novelty's there. It's probably a stronger factor in the male than the female sex drive, but uh, um, in some degree, new new things are exciting. New practices, new partners, new things. If we think go back to like the Victorian period, the late 1800s, women just were covered head to foot pretty much. And uh, I say like if if the woman's skirt came up and showed her ankle, you know, like the men might get an erection. Uh, it's a, a turn on, a big deal. You know, now ankles are, are nothing and knees and and all that. So. At least, though, that if you're getting turned on by a glimpse of an ankle as a young man, then uh, um, there's still plenty that's going to be new. And you've got a lot of you've got a lot of headroom to descend into. Yeah, you're right. Headroom, (laughs) and so this uh, second law of porno dynamics may (laughs) may well uh, have some valid basis. And uh, and yeah, I I do uh, worry a bit about the young man. I can totally understand. I mean. None of this stuff was available when when I was young. And uh, if it had been, I can well believe I would have been curious and and passionate enough that I would have gone ahead and and, and exposed myself to it. But in a way, I was lucky it was was not so available, and uh, um, more things were still new to me and uh, later in life. One of the most interesting things. It was just a passing comment. I think it was your co-author on this that said there were fewer sexually transmitted diseases ancestrally when humans had fewer clothes because skin to skin contact was more common and that meant that the diseases were able to be transmitted through from an arm to a back or whatever because we would be sleeping under a blanket together as a family because we didn't have enough hides to keep us warm and then you you develop clothes and these particular diseases realize that they need to mutate. And one of the most reliable ways to get skin to skin contact is to be transmitted through sex. I just thought that was so interesting. Uh, yes. That's uh, my colleague, Diane Tice. Uh, um, she knows more about that than I do. Uh, so I don't know how strong the evidence for that is, but I know it's an important and influential theory and, and, and certainly very plausible uh, with, with everything I know. That uh, as we see, diseases continue to mutate and adapt, uh, so they can find new ways of being transmitted and find new, new hosts. Uh, so yes, uh, the advent of clothing really made it harder for those that uh, were transmitted skin-to-skin contact, and so uh, they started to become sexual, uh, sexually transmitted diseases. There's also a, a section as well that I thought was really interesting about the suppression of female sexual desire, like in the, the, the fact that that's happened a lot throughout our uh, culturally. Um, it's just, it, it, it's one of those things where because men typically were the ones that were in power and the male insecurity or the, the sort of cuckold radar for men is so hyper attuned that it kind of doesn't surprise me that it would have been the sort of thing that would have been suppressed because every man was fearful of it. Um, well, that's one of the classic arguments about it, uh, that it was uh, perpetrated by the men. When we reviewed that literature, and I've done many literature reviews, and I could tell in advance this one was going to be a big, tangled, complicated mess. Um, but we dug up all the research we could find 
And it was surprisingly clear cut that the cultural suppression of female sexuality is mainly practiced by women. It's not the men who are doing it. Um, I think if you surveyed men and said, well, suppose we could put something in the drinking water that would reduce women's libido by half. So all women would have only half as much sexual desire. Do you think the men would be voting for that? Say, yeah, yeah, let's do that. I, I don't think so. So the idea that men want to stifle women's sex drive um, so that they don't have to worry about them, that that I don't I don't really think that's all that plausible or that there's much evidence for that. Why are women uh, why are women doing it then? Uh, women doing it probably for the the economic reasons we mentioned before that uh, sex appeal is in many cultures the woman's main ticket to uh, a successful and happy life. You know, we all need resources, we need food and shelter and the more you know, nice clothes and all those things. Uh, and that uh, in most societies, men produce the majority uh, of resources, and so women are dependent on men to get them, and, and they get them mainly in exchange for sex, uh, often by marriage, you know, sometimes shorter-term relationships or with sex work, prostitution, even just, you know, on a pay-for-case-by-case -case basis. But in all cases, the, the higher the demand, the higher the price the woman can charge, the more she can get in exchange uh, for sex. And so restricting the supply with the same demand uh, means that uh, the price will be higher. Uh, it's particularly focused, I mentioned the Victorians, so, and that's roughly the period from about 1830, I think, uh, to the end of the century to 1900, or sometimes they run it up to the beginning of World War I. Uh, but in that period, women were much more prudish than before or after. Uh, it was one of the most intense uh, cultural suppressions of female sexuality uh, that we've seen. And that's probably no accident. There were several interesting things going on. For one, traditionally in the farms, women had plenty of functions. You know, the men were still the boss of the farm, but the women did the spinning and the weaving to make the clothes and the canning to store stuff and, and so on. And then the Industrial Revolution took over women's work. Um, so... Like you started with the textile industry. So all that spinning and weaving, suddenly the women didn't have to do that. In the 1800s, they talked about something called the women question. Like, what are women good for? What's the woman's proper place in society? They didn't quite have a sense of this was because of the Industrial Revolution that suddenly changed uh, the rules of the game and taken away the economic functions of women. Um but what that meant is that a woman had a lot less to contribute. Uh, and so uh, sex became more and more important. Um, you know, a man wanting to run a farm in, say, 1650 or 1700 really needed a wife. And it didn't matter if you loved her. Uh, it didn't matter. You know, you, you wanted to have enough sex to produce children so that they would take over the farm when you got old. But you didn't really have to get along or anything. The, the family was an economic unit. Uh, but by a couple centuries later, the man doesn't, he's not a farmer anymore. He has an office job or something. Uh, and he doesn't have that same need for female input economically. So 
So her appeal, again, is is mainly sex, that uh, she's beautiful and he wants to have sex with her. So uh, restricting the supply um, made him willing to make the kind of lifetime commitment. Uh, the Victorian marriages probably lasted longest in Western history. Um, that was a, a factor, too. Uh, that's because improvements of public health meant that people lived longer. Uh, and you think of a, a marriage, you're saying like in the 1700s, the average marriage was 15 or 20 years because one of the others would die. Uh, and then suddenly people marry at 25 and they're living till 65. So they got to put up with each other for 40 years. Um, and then divorce was not available yet. You know, the, the 20th century uh, changed divorce laws and gradually became more liberal. And uh, some people put this rather cynically to say, well, legalizing divorce was a substitute for for plagues <laughs> and illnesses that uh, that kept marriages short. I wonder how um, many I wonder how many people were in Victorian marriages just hoping that a plague would come along. They were like, like I, I I can't deal with this anymore. I just want to be I want to be taken out. Well, they were certainly stuck together for a long period of time, and uh, they wanted either their themselves or their partner to be taken away. There even sort of jokes about uh, uh, people praying for their spouse to die, and then instead they they get sick and die themselves. And uh, isn't that ironic? Um, so anyway, they a lot of their adaptations to that. I mean, they were much more formal. They weren't uh, sharing everything as much. And, Husband and wife would separately dress up for dinner together and uh, all those things. And, and maybe that helped help them tolerate putting up with each other uh, for a much longer period of time uh, than in the past. Treating the enforcement of sexual norms of women by women and considering it like a, a price-fixing cartel that is sort of unspoken between all women but everybody enforces – I learned about that first in Mate by uh, Jeffrey Miller and Tucker Max, and they talk about the game theory of slut shaming. So they say that um, what they what other women don't want to have happen is for the price of casual sex to drop below a level that they would be prepared to get at. So if one woman is prepared to give blowjobs on the third date, but you want to wait until the fifth date, it's in your interests as a woman to apply social pressure to bring the the price up. I mean, first off, that's just a fascinating way. First off, it, it is counter to what most people believe about where norms and the enforcement of them come from, right? It's mostly the patriarchy and men that are telling women what they should and shouldn't do with their bodies. The same goes for beauty standards. The same goes, it's like, look, men don't, men, men don't recognize the clothes that you're wearing. Who do you think it is that's telling you that you should, that pastel shades are in or that it should be this kind of a dress or whatever? It's women that are doing that. So the cultural side of that makes sense. I had a theory that, have you heard of simps? Do you know what a simp is? No. Okay, so this would be the sort of guy um, on the internet. It's an like internet speak language. A beta male who would be fawning over a woman who evidently has no sexual interest in him, but he'll do things for her. Maybe he'll buy her gifts or take her out on a date in the long distant hope that she may one day decide to see him as a, a, a potential partner. Um, a lot of the time, guys that pay for girls on OnlyFans or support... Um, sex workers without getting sex in return are kind of seen as simps, although some guys that pay for sex work may also be seen as simps. And I had an idea that in the same way as 
slut shaming for women uh, enforces the price of sex and ensures that it doesn't fall below a particular rate that simp shaming from men so men that feel a particular amount of distaste for other men who are being they would see as a little bit sort of slimy and um, conniving i think one of the reasons for that is that the price of resources and commitment without sex is what men have to offer women in the same way as the price of sex without commitment or resources is what women have to offer men and I think that my theory was simp shaming is the same male to male enforcement. Women hmm. don't typically enforce simp shaming all that much. Well, why would you? You're going to be the beneficiary of this. Do you really want to say that more men shouldn't give away more resources and, and time and money and care and attention for nothing in return? Why would you do that? But men have an incentive to do that. They're incentivized massively to do that because they don't want some woman to be able to go to the guy next door, not need to give up sex, but be able to get the resources and attention and stuff. So that was my uh, bro science theory around that. Yeah, um, that that's intriguing and, and uh, plausible. Uh, I don't know how much of that is, is going on. Uh, and uh, I, I suspect the common reaction to men who are doing that would be more just feeling sorry for them. Um, if there may not be enough of them to pose a threat to the uh, artificially boosting the price of sex so that the men are expected to pay uh, even without getting it. Um, and we notice the laws have certainly gotten that way. I mean, you can think of marriage as uh, the man contributes money and the woman contributes sex. Uh, indeed, people choose their marriage partners partly based on those those criteria. The woman wants a, a good provider and the man wants a, a sexy, attractive uh, body. Um, but the laws are at the point where the woman's obligation to give sex uh, probably ends after the after the honeymoon, whereas the man's obligation to contribute money uh, goes on for years, even in many cases after the relationship is over. So he's not getting any sex anymore, uh, any rights, but he still has to uh, continue to pay. Um so I suspect men would be more concerned about things like that, although men seem to be seem to be suckers. Concerned about uh, a lot of things at the moment. So rolling the clock yeah. forward, given all of the stuff that you've looked at, uh, this imbalance that we have currently in the dating market, more women in colleges, two to one pretty much by 2030, it's going to be women out earning men between the ages of 21 and 29, more women achieving status and all that sort of stuff. Uh, what have you got any ideas about where the sort of sexual marketplace is moving in the future and what dating will be like going forward? Because it doesn't seem uh, massively optimistic from where I'm standing. Well, there are always reasons for pessimism. I could could come up with a few more uh, that you know, to the extent there are these hookup cultures and patterns, and that young men uh, being single. Uh, can have sex with a variety of women without much uh, commitment or expecting uh, to have to contribute much themselves. That uh, this is this is exceptionally bad preparation for marriage, uh, and so adjusting to being married uh, may be increasingly difficult uh, for the young men, and especially if it's true that the wife is going to be losing interest in sex. Well. Um, 
He's going from the single life where at least there was a variety uh, of options there and periodically would have episodes of great sex to having not so much. Um, and the sex being often divorced from a relationship context or commitment that also um, doesn't seem to prepare the young men well uh, for marriage. Um Women also brought up today to think they can have it all and have very high expectations for what is owed to them and what they're entitled to have and, and all that. Uh, they also, um, so as I say, there, there are plenty of reasons to be pessimistic uh, about the future of marriage. On the other hand, marriage has been a durable human institution. Uh, I remember being at a conference with a bunch of family researchers across multiple fields. And that was one of the points where the politicians were worried about the future of the family. And it, look, the family's always going to be there. It's the family's not going to disappear. Yeah. There are stresses and changes and problems. Uh, and there always are and, and always will be, but, uh, it's, it's not going to disappear as an institution. So marriage will continue to happen and people will continue to figure it out. The declining, birth rate is uh, is an issue for some concerned about the, the, the population and uh, apparently most of the I just saw some data on this that uh, most of the developed countries the, the the population that lives there is is declining is not reproducing itself uh, and so it's only by virtue of uh, immigration Africa is the one exception where the population is still continuing to uh, to increase and it may continue to overflow into into Europe and, and other nearby places. Um, but uh, that's an issue. And, you know, well, do we care? Does that make any difference uh, where the people come from? There are economic issues when the population shrinks. Uh, there are environmental issues when the population expands. Um, <laughs> uh, you can always find something to worry about. Uh, overall, life has continued to get better for most people, so I have a generally upbeat outlook. Um, and uh, despite all of the the problems and the misguided ways that we bring up boys and girls, um, they'll probably still manage to find each other, and there'll be plenty of decent people who will be glad to have a long term relationship with. Uh, someone and now um, someone of the same gender as well as, as uh, become an, an option uh, and accepted in society um, so having a long-term relationship seems to produce a lot of health and well-being benefits um, there are certainly conflicts and problems to be worked out but uh, I don't know I yeah. So, yeah, I have a few concerns and some pessimism and so on. But in the long run, it's uh, the society will muddle through and the population will manage and uh, men and women will still find ways uh, to go to bed together and occasionally to make make a baby. Good man. I like it. Uh, Roy Baumeister, ladies and gentlemen, if people want to keep up to date with the work that you do, you've written whatever it is, 600 papers and 30 books or something like that. Where's best to keep up to date with the things that you're up to? Uh, well, I guess there's a website, RoyBaumeister.com, that uh, we update periodically with uh, the new stuff. And uh, I don't know, I can be easily found on, online if people want to know what, what the latest is. I'm also doing a blog for Psychology Today. Uh, the, the book we talked about today was the audio book, uh, 
um, the, what is the social psychology of sexual interactions. Um, and so there's, there's plenty of, of stuff there. It's always a fascinating topic to explore and, and, and go on. One of many, but, but an important one. Roy, I appreciate you. Okay, thanks, Chris. 